talking about our new relationship to our our father. We have a new we have a new father. And we talked about how First uh, Peter is written to newer believers who are, frankly, are facing persecution. They're facing kickback because of their new life in Christ. And maybe they thought that things would be easy once they got saved. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this isn't as easy as we thought it was going to be. And it's almost like, okay, what do we do? You know, we're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting, we talked about this morning, for his deliverance. So what do we do in the meanwhile? What's life supposed to look like now? And we noted earlier that what, what, what Peter does is after the, the opening sec- section on our salvation, he transitions and focuses on our relationship to our new father. Now he's going to get to the part about, okay, you need to love your fellow believers. He's going to get to, okay, this is, you got to conduct yourself honorably in a pagan world. He's going to get to that. But where he begins is, you've got a relationship with a father that you never had before. And it's almost like he focuses on that because that's the most important. And we talked this morning about verses 13 to 16, the idea of reflecting the holiness of your new father. And I want to I want us to focus on verses 17 to 21 this afternoon. So verse 17, let me read it. And if you address as fathers, you can see here's that word. If if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Can you pick out from this the key command in these verses? The relationship to our new father that's like the key command? It's in verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear. So I want to talk tonight from this passage on fearing your new father. This morning, reflecting the holiness of your new father. Tonight, fearing your new father. We're going to have two, I'll have two main points here as we get to them. I want you to think with me for a minute of the, of the early church in Jerusalem. I want you to think of the excitement of 3,000 people getting saved in one day and all the baptisms. I want you to think with me of the privilege of being a part of that church that grew from an assembly of people that fit in one room, the upper room, Acts chapter 1, and boomed into 3,000 plus and more if you start reading the opening chapters of Acts. In the middle of that group of believers, and I won't settle, I don't know whether these were professing believers or genuine believers, 
you had a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. They're in the middle of all this excitement and spiritual hubbub. And other people around them are very generous. And if other people are generous and you're not generous, you have to fake it. And they evidently did not have the same generous spirit of people like Barnabas and some others. And so they decided they had to pretend and they lied. And you probably know the result of that story. But here was a couple in the early church who were seeking the approval of men. And they failed to remember one important thing. That the father upon whom they claim to call, is an impartial judge, holding his own children accountable for their conduct. They had more of a desire for men's approval than to be pleasing to God. They failed to live in fear of the one in whom they had claimed to place their confidence. And the passage that we're looking at here in 1 Peter is a passage that reminds us we are to fear our new father. So the first main point I want us to see is that God commands us to conduct ourselves during this life in a fear of him. God commands us to conduct ourselves during this life in a fear of him. And I think it's remarkable that God commands Christians' conduct. Like you might think, oh, you know, now I'm a child of God, so I'm good. You know, I'm, 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 I'm on the inside. And yet here's First Peter writing to these believers who are children of God. And Peter is saying to them, okay, your new father, you are to conduct yourself in fear before him. And this is not the only passage. I mean, think, here's something, just, I'll just read a couple of verses here. Acts 9.31, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or this one, this is a a favorite of mine, Philippians 2.12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Okay, so Paul's not there to guide them. Work out your own salvation with what? With fear and trembling. You know what trembling is? It's like, you know, trembling is like outward indication that you're afraid on the inside. It's like Paul is saying, you ought to be so careful and the decisions and the choices, the priorities that you're making in your Christian life as you work at your salvation, you ought to approach those decisions with fear and trembling. You're supposed to take your Christian life seriously, even as a Christian. And God commands Christians' conduct. What What God commands of their conduct is fear. This is isn't this an interesting thing? So fear, conduct yourselves in fear. I mean, what a word to choose. It's like you're being, being commanded to fear. 
And this word fear combines a lot of different aspects. Reverence, uh, fear of discipline, desire to please. Uh, I like what one commentator, his name is Schreiner, one way that one way he words this to prize God above all things. You know, fearing God in some ways at its root is where you prize God and God's opinion above anything else. At its core, that's what it means to fear God. And God commands us to conduct ourselves in this life of fear. He commands it now. I mean, look again at our verse. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn. And that word sojourn is the idea of while you're away from home, while you're temporarily away from home, while you're out of his visible presence, that's the time when you are to fear God. You're away from home and you've got to fear him even more. I think of this. Think of a college student, maybe, who, who goes away from home and goes to, you know, he or she goes to college. And imagine a conversation where the father says something like this. They say, OK, you know, son, daughter, you're going off to college. And of course, I want you to obey the rules. You know, they're at the college. But more than anything, I want you to live your life the way you would if you are still at home with me watching you. Yes, obey those rules. But I want you to live in that far off city. I want you to live there like as if you were still home with me and I were watching you. Prize what I think more than what they think in the city where you now live. That's kind of the idea. It's like, okay, we're away from God for a time. We're away from home. That's what I mean. We're away from home. And it's like God is saying, okay, while you're away from me, I want you to prize what I think more highly than anything else. You fear me while you're away from home. And you think of this in the, in the lives of, of some of the Old Testament saints. Think of Joseph, who's away from home. There's nobody to check on Joseph. His father thinks he's dead. His brothers pretend he's dead. There's no accountability at all. Joseph could do whatever he wanted. If you had that kind of freedom, what, what, what would you do with it? And yet when Joseph is tempted to sin, he says, how could I do this and sin against my God? His fear of God was greater than his approval, seeking approval of people. Or think of Daniel, who's away from home. There were a lot of Jews deported. There were thousands of Jews deported to Babylon. But you've got four who say, you know, I don't think we should eat the king's meat. Where were the others? But here are four guys away from home. And they're saying, well, you know, we may be away from home and we're in a different land, but we still have a God. And we're going to fear that God. And we know the rest of the story. Well, why? 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 Number two, God explains why we must live in the fear of him. Why? Why must we live? Why ought we to live in a fear of him? 
there are three major things under this I want us to see here. Number one is because of the kind of father he is. Or we can say it this way, because he is an impartial judge. And this is again in verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. One reason to fear God is that he is an impartial judge. He's not just judging on the basis of your, you know, of your income, of your position, or your status in society, or how good you are at athletics. I mean, he's not judging any of that. He's an impartial judge based on what you do. And you can't pull the wool over his eyes. You can't, you can't pretend and think he's not going to notice. He's an impartial judge. You ever do a job and somebody else gets a credit for it? How do you feel about that? You ever have that happen? It happens in our home sometimes. You know, my kids will do something. I'm like, I'll thank the wrong kid for doing something. You know, oh, thank you for washing the dishes. You know, oh, you're welcome, Dad. You know, then I find out some other kid is the one who washed the dishes. You know, it's like, I thanked the wrong kid and you took credit for it. You know, uh, but, you know, I mean, how do you feel when somebody else gets the credit? It's like, wait a minute. I'm the one that did that job. I'm the one that did that project. And, you know, the neat thing is that God is an impartial judge. He is not going to credit somebody else with what you did. He's going to remember your work of love. He he can count them all. He's going to give you credit for, for every work of righteousness you did. He is an impartial judge. And therefore... Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There is a day of reward coming, and he's an impartial judge. But a second reason why God commands us to fear him is because of the lifestyle change Christ sacrificially purchased for us. Because of the lifestyle change Christ sacrificially purchased for us. And this is in verses 18 through 20. And notice how this is connected to verse 18. There's no, there's no period at the end of 17. It just flows on to verse 18. Knowing, okay, so conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing this. Here's another reason why. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And he reminds them, okay, listen, think, I mean, think of the lifestyle change that Christ sacrificially purchased for you. Christ purchased you with something far more valuable than anything on earth. What's more valuable than gold? And yet it says not like something corruptible like silver or gold. And he he redeemed you from your feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers. How does that make you feel? It's like, what is he saying about my family? <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the empty, if we put a little more modern, you know, the empty lifestyle you got passed down to you from your family. What are you saying about my family? But you think about it, any any family lifestyle where Christ is not Lord is futile or it's empty. 
And I think back, and I don't know for sure his spiritual state, but my great-grandfather bought a lot of acres of land in a place called Dunnigan, Missouri, Casper Stoffisher. He was a, a big name in the town. He was seemed to be a pretty savvy farmer, was pretty, made money pretty easily, uh, was rather generous. He'd give to the church, give to other people, and so on. Um, he liked his beer. He'd have his son drive him to the local tavern on Friday nights. Casper dies, and I think some say the town kind of stopped when he when he died. He left a lot of land to his various sons and daughters. But, you know, we're not even sure Casper knew the Lord. His son, my grandfather, got saved in a Cumberland Presbyterian church, and here I, here I am today. But, I mean, we don't know what, you know, Casper made some money, and he made a mark in his town in his day. We don't even know if he knew the Lord. You talk about a feudal lifestyle. It's empty. What's, what good is it doing him now? And Christ's blood redeemed us from that empty lifestyle that was passed down to us from our, our ancestors. And it took blood to free us from that lifestyle. And when you think about it, you're really part of a plan of God, verse 20, that, that has been going on for, I mean, how long? Before the foundation of the world. And I mean, here's this long-standing plan of God, and the outworking of this whole plan has at this point in history fallen into your lap and mine. You know, sometimes what makes a plan even more special is that it's been planned for a long time, right? We never have like a vacation, and you've been working on it for two years. And your whole family is excited about this. We're going to go to the Grand Canyon. We're going to, you know, we're going to do this, that, you know. And it's like part of the excitement is, okay, we've been planning on this for a family for two years. You know, and you're so excited about it. Well, think of this. You're part of a plan that has been outworking since before the foundation of the world. And it has fallen into your lap. And you embraced it. This is part of this lifestyle change Christ sacrificially purchased for you to free us from our empty, our previous empty conduct. I think we all understand when somebody makes a costly sacrifice, we feel the obligation of that, right? In fact, in, in the Filipino language, there's something called utang na loob, which is a debt of gratitude you feel to somebody who has helped you. And that runs deep in their culture. In fact, we have students, and um, they will be, like in the Philippines, we've been talking about some of, some of the kids here, but the Philippines, the oldest child gets all the respect. There's a special term. And they also have all the responsibility. And the parents, typically the parents will pour like all, I mean, any money, no matter what their status is economically, they will pour their money into that firstborn child. And they'll give that firstborn child the best education they can give them. And because everything hangs on that child and that child will go to college and sometimes they will space out their children. So there's a firstborn and there's four years before the next child. And that's so the firstborn can finish college and then they help the next, the rest of the kids. 
And and so and and the way they you know the way they work it is like they will this firstborn kid they know their parents have sacrificially provided for them and their parents have a way of reminding them about this <laughs> we you know <laughs> you know make sure you remember us huh you know and they they push them their entire life to excel and get a good job and finish college and you're going to pull the family up there's a lot of poverty over there. And what happens sometimes, in fact, I've got a couple of students in my class right now, but you'll have some of these firstborn kids and they get saved. And then God calls them into ministry and their parents are unsaved. And their parents are like, what? <laughs> you mean all my sacrifice? All that we did for you to help you be an engineer, to get you through engineering school so you work abroad and you can make money. And you mean you're gonna you're not gonna help the family now? You're gonna go into the ministry after what we did for you? And I've watched these young people struggle. I mean the cultural pressure is huge. And it's the same kind of a thing. They understand there's been a lot of sacrifice poured into them. And there's some obligation. And think about that in terms of what Christ did for you and me. You think about that old rugged cross. Where a spotless lamb died on a cross for your sins and mine. And are, are we really not going to fear our new father? And then there's one last thing in verse 21. And I, I'm pulling this out as a reason. And that is because our faith and our hope are now in God. Our faith and our hope are now in God. And you can see as he, as he comes to the end of, this, of this, this little paragraph, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And it's like through Christ, through the sacrifice that he did for you, he freed you from this empty lifestyle you inherited from your, from your family, from your forefathers. And through him, you are actually now believers in God so that your faith and hope are in God himself, in the Father himself. You're banking everything on God. So if that's true, I mean, follow the logic here. Because your faith and your hope are now in God, you should prize what he thinks above everything else. Because we're banking on God. And by the way, you see this, this kind of juxtaposition often where those who believe in God fear him. But if I can, if I can you know, wrap this up here, you know, you know, really what we're talking about, fear your new father. Again, I like the wording of this, this one um, commentator. Is it's prizing God above everything else. That what matters to me most of all is what my God thinks. And I, I, I and there's a, a, per, a, a story in our family, a personal story I, I think of. Um, one of our, our twin boys was, I'm guessing he was two or three. We were in the Philippines. And um, we were getting ready, I think, for church, either chapel or church. 
And so I was, I was upstairs and he was upstairs and we keep our shoes downstairs. And um, so I, I told him, I said, okay, I want you to put your shoes on downstairs. And then I want you to come upstairs and I want you to show me that you obeyed me. He's like, okay, yes, daddy. You know, so I hear him, you know, clump down the stairs, you know, and he puts on his shoes and I'm, I'm upstairs in the room upstairs. And I hear, I hear him coming up the stairs and from the very bottom, he's like, daddy, I put my shoes on. You know, daddy, I put my shoes on. Daddy, I put my shoes. And as he's coming up the stairs, he's passing, you know, other siblings who are also getting ready for church. Like, yeah, good job. Yeah, good job. Yeah. But he doesn't care. You know, it's like, Daddy, I put my shoes on. Yeah, okay, good job. Just be quiet, you know. And he doesn't care about that. You know, I mean, you know, okay, yeah, 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 whatever, you know. Daddy, I put my shoes on. And he's not content until he walks into my, you know, where I am. And he says, Daddy, I put my shoes on. And he wants me to look at his feet. And look at him and go, good job, son. And then he's like, you know, he walks off and he's like, you know, life has never been better. The sky's never been bluer. The grass has never been greener. You know, I mean, life is good. I mean, he just got the approval of the person that means the most to him. And I think of that kind of like our father in heaven. You know, we are to fear our new father. And we can almost put it in these words. Prize what your father thinks above anything else above any human approval. And it's kind of like you go through life, oh, nice job on that, yeah, thank you, you know, good job, yeah, 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 thank you, you know, yeah, good job, no, yeah, thank you. But the thing we really want is to say, Father, hey, look, I obey. Good job, son. Good job, daughter. Well done. That is the approval we're living for. And that ought to be the perspective that we have as believers living in our fallen world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our father and letting us be your children. And thank you for what you have done through Christ. And Lord, help us to prize what you want above everything else. Lord, I just think of these words. I If I please men, I am not the servant of Christ. Lord, help me, help us not to be men pleasers. Lord, I think of this verse, the fear of man brings a snare. Lord, how many times have I I been ensnared because because I cared what people thought? And I didn't prize your approval above everything else. Lord, while we are away from home, would you help us to conduct our lives in a fear of you, working out our own salvation, even with fear and trembling, taking this seriously? because of our relationship that we now enjoy with you. And Lord, may we do so remembering the costly price that was paid so that we could have faith and hope in you. And we give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.